Mutability. Welcome to Nature's Lead. This is a podcast available at naturelead.com that both examines and inspires a certain approach towards life that is based both on personal philosophies and on the writings of people such as Emerson and Thoreau. Please send any feedback to info at naturelead.com or drop a comment onto the blog at naturelead.com or even onto iTunes or wherever you get the feed from. And if you're new to the podcast, I encourage you to listen to any prior episodes to get a better feel for things. This is Series 1, Episode 17. Title, Everything is Alive. Okay, welcome back. In this episode, I approach the intelligent, innocent idea of our youth, that there is life in the inanimate. And I look at some of Wordsworth's lines from the famous poem, Tintern Abbey. So we'll get to that in a second. But first, today's random window. Isn't autumn amazing? Nature is waking up all her minions. The winds that zip and slither around trees and hills. The rains that poke and pierce your cheek. The frozen moons that blind your memory. It's hard to pad through words and convey the awe of autumn. It is mutability in all its glory. I absolutely love it. On to the main topic. Everything is alive. I am more dead today. Not dead, just more dead. I am mostly muffled to the sights and sounds dancing around me. I have tunnel vision too often. Most of us do. So focused on what we are doing. On what others are doing. We don't notice the way the wind glides patterns across a sea of tall grass, or the way birds follow each other, zagging and zigging in the sky, with seemingly no leader, or the way hills of boulders and earth are clumped and formed with such diverse texture and natural strength. Certainly I notice these things at times. Certainly I am tuned to nature more than the average passerby, but I am a distant shadow a five-minute charcoal-etched impression of who I was as a child. When I was about six, I remember being on the back of a paddlewheel boat on the Potomac, heading to George Washington's house. And this older brother was sitting down on a bench in the back of the boat, holding away from his younger brother a beautiful English double-decker bus toy. And he was threatening to throw it overboard. I thought he was just playing around. But then, while he laughed and the smaller boy was reaching up for it, he threw it high over the paddle wheel and down into the river. I was devastated. Not for the boy, mind you, but for the toy. I felt so sad that the toy had been separated from the boy and that now it was going to be abandoned and alone at the bottom of the river. Inanimate things were alive to me. They had feelings. Maybe that's why I, today, can feel so much from nature, from trees, and rocks, and meadows. But more importantly, where did those beliefs go? When did they go? Why don't I feel those beliefs with such fervor and conviction today? William Blake deals with this loss of innocence in Songs of Innocence and Songs of Experience, where he has a poem about a subject first from the childlike, innocent perspective, And then he contrasts that with the stark reality of the mature, experienced voice about the same subject. And I'll go over some of these in 
in a future episode, as they are very famous in Romantic literature. But this, as I've mentioned before, was a common theme among the Romantics. Innocence versus experience. In this episode, though, I want to concentrate on our loss, or more specifically, our fading of innocence. One defense against this aging realism is memories. Memories are very important in our lives, and I highly recommend not only remembering your childhood experiences, but trying to empathize with them. Try to feel those things again, and try to feel how real and crucial they are to who you are inside. I remember in my teens driving around, and every once in a while, I would look down at a pebble on the side of the road when sitting at a light, and I would wonder, what has been the path of that rock? Where did it come from? Will this be the only moment in its thousands or hundreds of thousands of years of existence that it will be noticed by a human being or any animal? Even then, I was somehow casting a living existence onto that rock. Today, the most I do is make sure I face outward the honey container that looks like a bear when I put it away in the cupboard. (laughs) In fact, I don't even know why I do that. But I like that I do it, and I'm going to keep on doing it. But let me get back to that essential, beautiful belief, the belief that all things in this world have life, that all things feel in one way or another. Now certainly, I could dive down into the science of it and talk about how all inanimate objects actually are moving. At the atomic and subatomic levels, all things are moving and reacting and interacting. From that perspective, in a way, and in my heart, I do believe that all things are alive. Life is energy and movement, and all things possess these powers. And if string theory is ever concretely proven, then all things are simply varied vibrations of tiny strings, and we are more connected and related than we could ever today imagine. However, As you might guess, my belief that a child's toy car was somehow capable of feelings was not based on modern quantum mechanics or the inklings of string theory. No, my belief as a child came from a much higher source than science. It came from within. Remember the concept I introduced in one of the first few episodes? Intelligent innocence? That belief or that feeling that I had was simply in me. And I think it's in most people. And life and society slowly pinch that fiery wick until all we feel is the smoke of memories. In fiction or movies, the ability of people to imagine the events they're reading or watching as real is called the suspension of disbelief. Disbelief. That's what we are full of as adults. Disbelief. And to enjoy and fully appreciate a work of fiction, we need to suspend that ingrained reality filter that we use to judge everything. As I'm sure you know, kids wholeheartedly buy into movies much more than adults, even to the point that a small boy will believe the marshmallow monster from Ghostbusters may come to get him in the night. And then know that example is funny and seemingly ridiculous, I know it to be true. I won't tell you how, but... It's true. 
As adults, I think it's vital to care about buildings, about cars, about clearings in the woods, about old perched trees on the side of lakes, about rocks. We already care about people and animals. Why not feel an attachment to an old antique piano or your favorite pen? There are a series of abandoned abbeys in northern England and Scotland and Wales, beautiful, majestic ruins. An abbey is a church of sorts, but it's much bigger, and the ruins have these elaborate towers and walls and intricate stone-worked windows. I've been to a few in Scotland, and they have this fantastic emotional weight that slows you down to absolute stillness when they are first discovered. There is one along a river called Tintern Abbey that I want to visit someday, for this is the one that Wordsworth wrote about in 1798. He writes from that spot in reflection, as he had been there at 23 years old. And at 28, when he wrote his poem, he remembers his youthful, emotional abandon upon his earlier visit. He speaks mostly of the landscape, of nature, and I think that's what is so interesting about these abbeys. I noticed that they seemed a natural part of the earth. As ruins, they flowed smoothly into the surroundings. It's as if someone set out to make a sculpture in the woods that would have vague remnants of human worlds passed by long ago, but more importantly, to accent the landscape, melding the works of humans with the works of nature. But enough of my feelings about those abandoned abbeys. I want you to hear some of Wordsworth's thoughts. Here he is talking about how the scene before him, for he is writing this at, at the location, has been with him and has fed him since his first visit. Quote, These beauteous forms, through a long absence, have not been to me as is a landscape to a blind man's eye, but oft in lonely rooms and mid the din of towns and cities, I have owed to them in hours of weariness sensations sweet, felt in the blood, and felt among the heart, and passing even into my pure mind with tranquil restoration. Unquote. This is what we need to do. At least I know it's what I need to do. I need to continue to remember those moments. I need to empathize with that form of myself during all great moments in my life's memory. For I can't find enough of those great moments, those overpowering emotional moments in my daily life. I rarely even have time to look. But I want to continue to do what Wordsworth speaks of. I want to feel it in the blood and in the heart. I want to recapture those feelings of intelligent innocence and, from time to time, restore tranquility. And then he later states exactly the point of this episode. Quote, While with an eye made quiet by the power of harmony and the deep power of joy, we see into the life of things. End quote. This is the connection of which we are so often deprived, seeing into the life of things. And by having these heightened and openly aware experiences, we realize, quote, that in this moment there is life and food for future years, unquote. 
I live off this food every day. I am often remembering back to meaningful moments in my life. He then delivers a line that is very powerful in its meaning. He's looking back at those, quote, boyish days, unquote, when he was there years before, and he states, quote, to me was all in all, unquote. Hmm, to me was all in all. I couldn't agree more. How inspiring, how invigorating. In that line is freedom. In that line is the raw power of nature. Whether the earth, or grown from the earth, or human-made, or humans themselves, I am simply so happy that I, and all of us, have the power to perceive the beautiful truth that everything is alive. That brings us to a close. So until next time, I wish you well, and don't forget to follow nature's lead.